0: When my father died the spring of 99, the very first day of spring actually at around 4 in the morning, I didn't know what to do with myself. I just knew I wanted out of my house. So I threw on some clothes, got into my car, and drove across town to a long one-story brick house behind the old corner market in Belmead. I parked my car on the street, closed my door quietly, and walked across the front lawn to the farthest window on the left, faintly lit from within. I tapped and waited. Neil's startled face appeared and he motioned to the front door. I went inside and told him what had happened. He held me while I cried and then let me fall asleep on the small couch in his bedroom. I woke up a few hours later and went back home. Neil and I weren't particularly close. We were in the same friend group and spent a lot of time together in the way teenagers do but he didn't confide in me. I wasn't his first call after a breakup or a disappointing day. He graduated a year before I did, and we didn't keep in touch after that. It's likely the only reason we reconnected is thanks to Facebook and a chance run-in a year or so ago in Hillsborough Village, where I was grabbing some food before a movie, and he was on his lunch break from nearby Vanderbilt Hospital. Neil has worked as a pediatric emergency room nurse, but since a few months ago, he's been part of a special response unit that treats COVID patients. He's on the front line of the pandemic here in Nashville. I guess that's why I thought to go to Neil's house that early morning, because he was, as he is now, the kind of person who comforts, who connects, even when he doesn't want to, even when he builds walls to prevent it from happening. But there's something in Neil's nature, something about who he is and what he's made of that hurting people are drawn to. Today, we talked to my friend Neil about a mislabeled seasoning from a friend. I'm Rebecca Delius, and this is Memento Story. A note to listeners, this episode contains mention of self-harm and suicide.
1: You and I have known each other for a long time. Yes. I remember being with you around the time your dad got sick and passed away.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: What, from having that experience with your uh, father and mother now, led you to the idea for the podcast here?
0: You know, I remember as a kid being sat down in front of photo albums or being shown like this was your grandfather's pocket knife or, you know, whatever. And you learn those stories behind it and you learn like, OK, I didn't know this person, but like here's something tangible from him. Like I know that he existed and I know that I know something about him. And I think about all of these possessions and belongings that I have for my family members that potentially those stories are just lost and who they are are just lost. And It started me thinking that I'm sure other people have similar items that maybe they've never told, you know, about the story behind them or they never shared that with anybody or they don't have children or they don't have anybody else to sort of pass that on to. So it's kind of what the idea came from.
1: There's a number of things you hold on to, especially over the years when you move so many times. Yeah. Just because... And you fill in that because because it belonged to somebody else. You just can't get rid of it. Right. There's things that you hold on to because that belonged to somebody else and you want to remember them. Or you don't want to throw it away because you're throwing away a piece of what you remember. Like a, right. a throwing away a tangible, like you said, like a solid memory. Or things that you're holding on to because at some point you think, I'm going to do something with it. Mm-hmm. Or somebody else will want that. Yeah. I think Especially with the grandparent items from the depression era stuff where our grandparents were part of, there's like a sin in the waste.
0: Right. Cause like, they would have never thrown any of that never stuff away. Any of that stuff yeah. away.
1: Well, they'd turn over in their grave if they thought I was just going to throw that away. Right, like, It's still good for something. Right. Even though I can't use it for anything. I haven't had storage units before and we've, I think by other people's measures have not moved many times, but there's a number of things I've kept over the years and through moves that I really have no reason to, to keep. And mm-hmm. they, they continue to sit in a basement or an attic or a closet and take up space and collect dust because I can't let them go in the sand but I also don't have anything to do with them. Right. After a couple years ago, my dad decided to move out of the house that I grew up in where my mom lived. And a number of things came up like that, that we were kind of finally able to let go of. And I got to the point of a number of items. I couldn't throw them in the trash. It seemed very wrong. And like, it would have really bothered me to think, well, sometimes you think about people who have died and I don't know if everybody does this, but I do think like of physically where they are now, mm. especially if you were close to the circumstances of death, where their remains lie, what state their remains are in. Mm. I think about like what state their tombstone or their burial place mm. is in. If there's things growing there, you know, stuff yeah. like that, who walks by every day that mm. kind of just what's the actual activity around that yeah and the same thing would go with an item a piece of furniture a piece of clothing or a like eyeglasses or something like that it would bother me knowing that sitting in a landfill under layers of other rubbish or garbage yeah I got to the point after we moved my dad out and I had about a pickup truck full of things that I burned oh wow and it felt so much more cathartic and final.
0: Were they things that belonged to your mom?
1: Yeah. And a lot of it was just from the house because I, I had only lived in one house my whole life. Yeah. And that, that house on uh, West Town and Hetty Drive. Um, and so many of the things, again, I just, I knew they were going to tear the house down after we left. And so many of those things I didn't want to get run over by a a steamroller and right. put into a dumpster and carted off somewhere. With
0: Like the you wanted to lace. give it a proper burial. Yeah.
1: I wanted to, and I, I think I needed to see it out of existence mm-hmm. and to know like where it is no more. It physically is no more. It is the ash in my front yard and the burn pile now, yeah. like that kind of thing. And it was also very, I think, helpful to me to watch it transform. Yeah. I think the transformation of those items was, it was very helpful for me, at least, to watch that stuff, to actually physically watch the stuff burn up into ash. Right. So that it, it's not that it is no more, but it's very different. When I think that kind of stuff psychologically, the transformation is important because mm-hmm. now it's not just... I can't think of like where it physically is. it is in the dust in the wind in the grass that it grows It's just a little bit more helpful psychologically to think of that was very helpful for me, and the same goes with the uh, furniture. We recently my grandmother passed away at almost a hundred. we just called her a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> and I was around for watching my dad and his brother and sister have to deal with their house because she's got to live in her house up to her death. Oh, my goodness. And they hadn't taken care of things since they moved out, you know, in the 70s. So I didn't suggest to them, nor do I think they would have been hip to burning, literally burning things <laughs> in a bonfire in the backyard. But there were a number of things that, they, you know, my dad being an engineer and they're they a very practical bunch. You got to put it into a dumpster. And you can't just throw it in there. If it's above the level of the dumpster, like they won't take it. It's uh-huh. got to be at the level. So a lot of that stuff, I said, well, we're going to have to break it apart. And the, I saw all three of them kind of pause on that. And I just said, why don't you guys go inside? I'm going to tear this apart. And they came outside to a, a bookcase that my grandfather had made. He was a, a bit of a carpenter. Yeah and I'm sitting there kicking it apart into boards with nails sticking out so I can throw it in the dumpster flat. Oh. I think they were all just sort of horrified, but eventually they got into it. Cause the same thing, like he had, he had restored furniture and this is my grandfather who'd been dead for a long time now. Yeah. His workshop and his garage was still looked like he just left, right? So a number of items, half finished pieces of furniture and stuff look like somebody could still work on that. And again, that's still good for something, even though the chair doesn't sit straight and the right. bottoms busted out
0: yeah you never know yeah you never know somebody, <laughs> might,
1: somebody <laughs> might use that but they uh they were all disturbed at first to watching me literally breaking that stuff apart to put it in the in the dumpster and they, they got into it after a while but again it was just helpful to be like it's not a chair anymore now it's a bunch of pieces of splintered old wood right and you can let go of that a little bit more easily than yeah. you can a half finished piece of furniture
0: that's a know. really good point
1: the transformation part of that stuff seemed really helpful it also seemed really helpful to them at least to have watched they did an estate sale and to watch all that stuff be carried out by somebody else instead of thrown away
0: that's something else that i actually when i had someone else on and was talking to them about what they wanted to happen with their item which i will also ask you about about yours but spoiler and she said you know i'm not going to have kids so the most i hope for is that somebody else finds it and appreciates how beautiful it is and and i think that that's the hope, is that if you can't give it to somebody that has some sort of connection, whether that's blood or family, that you can at least give it to somebody who would appreciate and use it. You right, know? right.
1: It has a second life, even if yeah. yours is over. Right.
0: Yeah. What did you bring today, Neil?
1: This is a pepper shaker.
0: Okay. Can you describe it for me?
1: Yeah. It's about three inches tall and about one inch around in diameter. It's black, like a pepper shaker, but has a <laughs> white top to it. Yeah. And inside it is not pepper, but salt. Okay. So it's a pepper salt shaker that's got a lot of salt in it.
0: Who is that from?
1: I had a, a co-worker friend uh, that I worked with closely for a number of years who had a couple names. He ended up being transgender before the end of his life, but he was known as Tristan. So yeah, it belonged to him. He was a co-worker close. Uh, I would say close friend at work. I did not know him well outside of work, which is not unusual in my field. We're emergency room staff and uh, nurses, so we get very close at work, uh, having gone through a number of traumatic experiences and just seeing a number of traumatic situations and being in high stress and critical situations, etc. But, you know, there's not a lot of hanging out outside of work. Why is that? Or each other's family. For me, at least, it was because often it's at work, especially on shift. we got to go home. If we stay in that place and decompress after work, with or without uh, <laughs> stimulants or alcohol or something... <laughs> You stay in that place and that, um, you don't ever really decompress from it. And it's just like, uh, being a, like, you can't, you got to get off that roller coaster at some point, right? Most healthy people in those type of situations, when it's over, you leave. And most of the time I had a, a family at home to get home to and other things to do. You tend to know each other well at work again, because the, the nature of uh, the position that he and I shared, we were not like room staff. We didn't take a room assignment or take care of people directly. This was a job I had for a number of years where we were more or less like a communications liaison. So we spent the majority of our work at a desk with sometimes have a headset on in front of a computer with two monitors and a telephone and an EMS radio. And in the back part of the emergency room where the, the physicians were in the sort of a, a open workspace. And next to a computer that showed radiology results and next to a, two or three different telephones we were just like a, I think the technical name for the was a communication coordinator or a clinical communication coordinator. It's a very random job. There's a lot of time you're also just sitting waiting for a call or waiting for a phone call back and a phone call you already made, that kind of thing. So you talk a lot and yeah. share a lot and share anecdotes a lot. He and I already knew each other before I got that position and did that job with him, but we learned a whole lot more about each other.
0: What was he like?
1: Um, he was pretty uh, curmudgeon. <laughs> um, he was just a little bit taller than me. He was pretty thin and I would say like gaunt, thin and wiry. He was a cyclist and would sometimes ride like fifty to sixty miles. Oh my god! um, On a on a cycle during his days off, like it was nothing. Holy moly! So he was like like a thick squirrel, (laughs) kind of a (laughs) body mold. Um, Shaved head the entire time I knew him. Uh Pretty thin face most of those last couple years of his life, and he I think was taking some steroids. So he would usually was very proud of his peach fuzz. Oh. He's got one of those voices that you couldn't place. Like if you heard it on a telephone or if you just heard it around the corner, you would not be able to say that's a man or a woman. You know, it was yeah, like he kind it, of androgynous. Deep and a little, voice, yeah, or yeah, had like a, a high pitched male type voice and would introduce himself to Tristan. I I knew him by his previous name before I got that job. I had a knee injury and had to take out of work to have knee surgery. And during that time I was out, I made the transition from one part of the ER job to doing that job. Mm-hmm. So when I came back, I was laid up with a brace on my knee and kind of on light duty and sitting, <laughs> sitting next to him, having him teach me how to do this job at the same yeah. time. And he had just made the transition when I was out with my surgery. So we both came back. like We talked about this a couple of times. We both came back with a different physical situation than we had left with. Mm-hmm. A job that only a couple people did. There was only one person. There was only four of us total. So mm-hmm. most people did really didn't understand what we were doing on our day you <laughs> right know, was, um esoteric work and uh he you know, his name was caroline he had been around the er and the adult emergency department to the pediatric emergency department for 10 years or so before i worked with him in that job so everybody knew him everybody knew he had made the transition but so easy to forget so i sat next and i didn't tell anybody i was leaving with my knee surgery i just left so we both came back and sitting next to each other, learning this job, people coming up to him and calling him Caroline and then having to listen to about 400 times him say, oh, doctor, old friend of mine, I'm not Caroline anymore. I'm right, Tristan. Please right. call me Tristan. Yeah. There's follow up questions. And also, oh, Neil, you're back to work. Where have you been for the past 12 weeks? Oh, well, I busted my ACL meniscus and I'd have knee surgery. And long story, long story. Yeah. We both got to hear that long story a <laughs> hundred times. So uh, we just got to know each other pretty quick through all that.
0: Right. So what endeared you to this person?
1: I think I liked, again, This is the position that we were doing is uh, kind of uh, special. Nobody, no, we hadn't done it before. It was an esoteric work. Yeah. Um, pieces of it were done by different teams, but putting it together, nobody really understood what our position was. And I think that was true with him too. It was just sort of a, he didn't fit in any box that anybody had for people. Mm -hmm. The older I get, the more I realize I like being like that too. Mm -hmm. I don't like being somebody who's easily described Mm -hmm. or quick to know. Mm -hmm. So I think I like that about him that I was like, I was in on his secret a little bit. (laughs) He was one of the few people at the hospital, at least at the time, I kind of let in on some of my little secrets like that. Yeah. Looking back in the hospital, in in my professional work, when I first started doing it, really thought I could keep most people at an emotional arm's length I could have people who knew me at work and then people who knew me at home and my family and not really have to let those places bleed over into the borders there was something about coming back after a, a knee surgery. I mean, orthopedic surgery wasn't life-threatening by any means, but I was physically changed. I <laughs> couldn't run laps around the unit anymore.
0: Right. You probably had to rely on, on assistance from people maybe for a few things. Or
1: Well, I think everybody goes through this, but that was the first time I realized I don't have that freakish athletic ability of a young person anymore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, for me, it's when I get winded walking up any stairs.
1: Right. Just like that was the first time I'd ever had to use crutches. Any of that stuff. Yeah the feeling of your own mortality, I guess, and then uh, having to tell that to people. And then I think getting to know Tristan really broke that down. And for the first time, I realized the people I work with are the people who see a lot of the time of my life that I spend doing what I was doing or doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I need to let them in Mm -hmm. and I need to be close to them. And I need to let myself expect that from them and from myself first time I really just let people know me on a very personal level and open my heart Mm. to people I work with and let myself be okay with that Mm -hmm. not hold back or yeah yeah. and he and Tristan was that as tough as he was and sometimes he was just outright rude mean had a heart of gold yeah and uh when it really was down to it he'd do anything for anybody but not just anybody
0: do you think some of that gruffness or that curmarginliness was a sort of a defense mechanism i mean i imagine
1: somewhat the transition I
0: think, could have been difficult i yeah, don't know i heard a
1: lot of stories about him after he had after he passed away that would to explain some of that just in the life he led and the childhood he had and yeah that he could just be a very tough person you know so <laughs> one of our jobs we had was to uh receive the report on a patient that another hospital was sending to our emergency room. Okay. One of the main things that we would do that one person's job. And we were very good at it. There's a lot of pediatrics. There's a lot of specific information that your average person would not catch. So we are there for like safety reasons. I like to just hear what people say. So if I'm doing that, I'm going to let somebody just talk and talk and talk and talk. And then I'll get to my questions at the end. It's the stuff that they just didn't think to tell me and that I need to know tristan was the opposite of that if some most people who are calling us don't do pediatrics and we're like the experts at pediatrics he would just lead with questions right he doesn't really care what you have to say (laughs) and he knows you don't know what he knows so he's just going to lead with questions it's going to save time
0: yeah
1: and sometimes that would just come across as like (laughs) really rude and sometimes i would hear the the react I could hear the line sometimes on my headset and yeah. I would hear the the pause on the other end because you know the southerners are not used to that type and
0: that kind of direct and like, oh uh,
1: well and they just answer his questions and that's all he needs to know from me you can hang up now
0: right um, yeah yeah so what happened to Tristan
1: uh he killed himself um hold on I transitioned out of that job after about three years and I started taking um, an assistant manager kind of position, a clinical staff leader position. One of the responsibilities in my file, in my bucket, were leadership over the team that I worked with him for previously, so I went from like doing the job with the other four people to being the supervisor over the team, and he was one of my direct reports. There was a, a week where he just didn't call out and didn't show up, it was pretty unusual. He only worked three shifts a week. After the second day that happened, we called his family and they were looking for him too.
0: Was his family in town, or were they? Yeah, yeah, they yeah.
1: live in uh, West Nashville. Yeah. After um, I don't remember at what point it happened. I was getting ready to leave town for a work thing, and my manager, who's also a friend of mine, called me on a Saturday and said that they had located him off a Notch Trace Bridge mm. in a car. It looked like he had more than intentionally overdosed and was and had passed away. Oh wow! So he killed himself.
0: Do you remember the last time that you saw him?
1: No, no, I don't think so. I remember the last time, like uh, you know, the la- the collection of the last times I saw sure. him. Sure. Yeah. It was very routine. I think he saw me in my little office and talked about work stuff. Nothing. You know, you've been over this when someone, especially when somebody kills himself, you go over it over and over and try to think if you had missed something and. I don't remember. Were anything. you
0: were you surprised to hear that? Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I had no indication that he was suicidal or had ever tried to hurt himself or do anything like that. It was a surprise.
0: So what did the pepper shaker? <laughs> how does that come into
1: it? Again, we had a little communication coordinators corner in you know, the ER. Most other staff rotate throughout, and they sit wherever. There's an area where the Attending physicians who are in charge sit in an area where the resident physicians who are learning sit, and there's an area where the medical students sit, but otherwise you, you rotate kind of round robin to the computers, and these mm-hmm. are all little workstations and stuff. We had a, a special phone and a special couple computers and a special little radio and our little special corner that we were the only four people that sat at, and that comes with the perk of your special cabinet, <laughs> your special <laughs> little file cabinet, and your special place to put just your coffee cup. Just ma- It's it's like a little corner office. Yeah. And a place that nobody else would go and sit like it's just kind of your turf, Tristan had a habit of eating food that the whole place could smell
0: <laughs> was he, he uh, like a heat up some fish in the microwave no kind fish. of okay.
1: <laughs> sometimes he would he had in his cabinet so I got this pepper shaker because as his direct report and I was I don't know if I would have called myself his closest friend, but I would I definitely knew him like well as well as some of his closest people in the hospital. Uh, I got the pleasure of cleaning out his stuff mm. And he had four cans of tuna, uh, he had this old nasty Starbucks, like ceramic Starbucks coffee that he liked to drink his coffee in. He always had gum for everybody. So he had several packs of gum that he never chewed for everybody. That's all been well gone through over the years. That's, that's yeah, long gone.
0: That's really sweet.
1: He had a bunch of good pens and a bunch of really good, like, good little resources like flip books and stuff of fast information that I've kept because it's handy. But in it, he had the salt shaker. So he liked sometimes to heat food. He would bring boiled cabbage, boiled <laughs> broccoli, boiled... Oh, my goodness. I, I think he was... Uh, I used to think he was really healthy. Like, he was just... Uh, paid a lot of attention what he was putting in his body. He was a cyclist. He was in shape. Right. And he was on a diet. And he also he had, either had soy sauce or he would sprinkle this salt into his food. Everybody knew when he worked because he would go and microwave it and then go back to his desk and eat. Right in the, again, right in the doctor's workstation. Mm-hmm. And it... And it smelled like boiled cabbage throughout the place. It stunk. <laughs> Everybody always complained about that. I don't know why he had. I mean, it's the same salt shaker the rest of the hospital would have in their break rooms, but it's he has a salt and the pepper shaker. Yeah. And it was full. And to my re- recollection, it was always full. I mean, he. I think he just he liked to keep it full, and he yeah. liked to keep it in a pepper shaker so that nobody else came to use his salt. Yeah. That's among the things that I took from his corner and kept in my office. And yesterday when I knew I was gonna be doing this, I called up the person who's in my office now and said, this, this is really random, but if you open the cabinet <laughs> above your desk, cause there's still a, a black pepper shaker in the corner. She said, yeah, I said, is it full of salt? She's like, <laughs> yeah, well, why is that? I haven't been in that office for about a year. It's like, um, this is really random, but I'm gonna come and get that from you, okay? Yeah. She's like, do you need some salt? And you just go store it, no, I need that. <laughs> That's um old. I need that salt and the pepper shaker to, to do this with.
0: What about that pepper shaker makes you remember him? Or when you look at it, what do you remember about him?
1: First, the, his food. And just that it was always in his stuff. Yeah. Um, it wasn't like salt packets. I don't right. know why. Like, <laughs> he was particular enough to have his own thing. Yeah. And also particular enough to, to disguise it.
0: Right. I mean, that's kind of like a quirky personality, well,
1: right? Well, where we set. We would also have this other computer next to us, and it was just a random workstation computer, a clinical workstation. He uh, despised when somebody who didn't work there and wasn't close to him, didn't know him, came to sit down at the computer, usually a consultant or something, just somebody yeah. breezing through the ER. He would sometimes put a post-it note on it that just said, no randoms. <laughs> or sometimes he would sign into that computer too and turn the screen towards him so it looked like he was using three monitors. Yeah it was like another example of the ways that he had of keeping the people he wanted to at bay and uh, other people that he didn't like. So he wouldn't, if I had asked to use it, he would have said, sure. But if somebody he didn't care for, didn't know asked, he would have said, no, it's it's old pepper. Don't use that. You know? um,
0: Yeah. Is that kind of part of it that this person who had a really either hard time or just chose to keep others out that you knew you were kind of in with him. I mean, that has to be kind of a comforting thought, right?
1: Yeah. I think it's also the, just the elementalness of it, the salt, yeah, the seasoning, and the makes it a little bit special, makes it a little bit better. When I I looked back at a couple pictures that somebody had of him a year or two before I started working with him, and I also didn't realize he must have gone through some stages of some bulimia. Just looking at pictures of you could tell by their their cheeks and just his um, face physically changed over a couple years. Yeah, I knew he didn't have the best teeth. Mm-hmm. You know, looking, I didn't think any of that at the time, but like looking back, he can kind of put these things together. And I thought at the time, like some of that boiled, nasty boiled food that he had to salt up really good, had something to do with that. I don't know what. It was something he could stomach. It was something he could eat. Yeah. Uh, that didn't make him sick. I don't. I don't know what what that was to do. But not long after he passed away, I met his parents.
0: Did you go to his funeral?
1: Uh, he didn't have funeral. Um, we did a memorial service at a, at the hospital, and I spoke. And afterwards, uh, me and my supervisor, like my manager and my manager's boss who, again, like, knew Tristan pretty well from the years of working with him, we went to see his parents at their house. I didn't ask about it, but his mom just said something about him. uh, There were only a couple foods that he would eat. Mm -hmm. And there were things like boiled cabbage, you know, just things like (laughs) doesn't sound very appetizing. Right. Not a lot of flavor in there with him. uh, It made me think there was something else there going on that it wasn't that necessarily by his choice. It was... Maybe that was all he could eat, or all he liked to eat. I don't know, but um, it
0: almost sounds like a punishment. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, there eating. might have been something
1: there too. I don't know. Yeah,
0: have you mourned him?
1: Yeah, I mean, I still. Yeah, you know, I was telling my wife about this when I was knew I was going to be doing this yeah. uh, talk. I think a lot about this with the when somebody brings this kind of topic up, like people you know that have died. My God, you start ticking them down a whole lot more than you think of uh, every day. And on one hand, I would say at some point, I think of like all of them every day, Mm -hmm. but not by name. You know, I wouldn't say that I think of Tristan or a story having to do with touches him every day. But I definitely I feel like their essence or their a thought they would only only they would get, you know, or a a joke that they were only only they were there for. That kind of stuff crosses my mind a lot.
0: Yeah, I think there's also for me, there's something think, to the idea that whoever you meet or you let in or you have some sort of significant exchange or relationship with, and that's not necessarily marked by the longevity of the relationship. I mean, you can have a meaningful interaction with somebody that lasts seconds, but they kind of change you. And so you're constantly being changed by the people that you come into contact with or that you spend time with or that you love or that love you. And so to your point, what you're saying is that you don't necessarily, you know, sit in your car and think, man, I miss my mom and I miss my dad and I miss my, you know, but you, you feel them, you know, and you feel that influence, how they've helped construct who you are, different thoughts that you have or memories that you have or pieces of you that are only there because of them whenever those, you experience those in your day-to-day life, you know, I think that is a way of, of kind of honoring them and memorializing them, you know? For
1: mourning him, again, looking back, that was one of the first times I remember actively letting people in, Mm -hmm. like to the inner room that I worked with. Mm -hmm. And the type of work in hospital and nursing and emergency rooms is very transient. People come and go a lot. And again, this is kind of a theme in my emotional life, but Letting people get close to you, knowing that they're going to leave eventually, yeah, or short term, and it has nothing to do with you is like really a, that's always been a very big challenge for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Why is that, do you think?
1: I think it's protective, mm-hmm. mostly just protective of my emotional stability, but I think it's about my mom was an alcoholic too, mm. and the more I've read and known about <laughs> children of alcoholics, I think one of the big themes for me is the complete aversion to disappointment mm. I'll go <laughs> I will do anything to not be. Caught off guard or disappointed. Yeah. We lower our expectations beyond the basement, you know, and emergency rooms and nursing staff and people that you teach and people that you train and people that you uh, mentor. And I know they're going to fly off. Yeah. There's only so close I'm willing to get. Right. So that I'm not. Hurt, they're disappointed when they leave,
0: right? Or we assume that the worst will happen anyway, so that we're yeah. not disappointed. Yeah, you know, yeah teaching, train, and
1: get close to these people, expecting them to be gone in six months. Right. And Tristan and I both used to have a, a phrase about the new nurses when they would come in, and be like, hey, "You know, uh, yeah, they're nice. They're maybe good looking or something. If they are still working here in six months, I'll introduce myself." <laughs> and then you end up getting the reputation of that tough surly old person who knows a whole lot and has been through a whole lot but they're you know they won't t- talk to you for a little while
0: like. yeah hearing about you two working together i just had a flash of like the two like old puppets from the muppet show waldorf and astoria <laughs> you know kind of like heckling everybody around them and kind of making like inside jokes to each other you know as they're yeah as they're sitting there
1: well <laughs> i much of the tactful i'm usually the tactful one and the uh, um, peacemaker among teams. Yeah. And the uh, one that's going to try to reconcile folks. I don't know how many, especially when I became Tristan's supervisor, uh, when I would seek feedback on him to give him like a professional evaluation or something, we'd talk to the physicians and a couple of them really could not stand the way he interjected his opinion into their clinical judgment. He was usually right, even <laughs> if he wasn't tactful. Right. Or at least half right, even if he wasn't, he's no physician or anything like that. But that always amused me that, you know, I know that bothers people, so I don't do that. Yeah. And I also am looking to make friends and to make comrades and...
0: Lasting professional to, connections. Yeah. Well, like, we're <laughs> also we're
1: all trying to take care of some sick kid. You know, yeah. that's not really helpful. Just didn't really care about any of that. He would more like just cut to the point and tell anybody that was wrong that they're wrong in no no uncertain terms. And a lot of people didn't care for that a bit.
0: Yeah. Why do you think he got into healthcare?
1: Oh, that's a good one. I don't really <laughs> know. From what I knew from his father, and, you know, he's one of those really smart people that could have done anything he wanted. Yeah his family was very financially successful. From what I understand, Tristan was really good with his father at strategizing their finances for the whole family. He he could have been a broker of some sort. I don't know anything about that. I think he got some sort of a scholarship at some point out of high school to go to uh, some medical school and something. He turned that down. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. When I met him again, he was Caroline, still had a shaved head, a couple tattoos And came over to train in the pediatric world from the adult ER, Mm -hmm. adult emergency room to the pediatric emergency room goes from like really being kind of a tough, gruff environment to having to blow bubbles for the patient so that you can place their IV, you know, just a very different world and took right to it.
0: Was he good with the kids?
1: Yeah. 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 Sometimes those toughest people, the children, um, adults, you kind of got to bullshit a little bit with and him and Holland joke and be a little bit fake, you Mm -hmm. know, and they makes them comfortable. Kids can see right through that. So if you walk into a sick kid's room and you try to fake it, then they're not going to trust you a bit. Tristan would never fake anything. Yeah, I was like going to say, it so
0: seemed like he was pretty authentic all really the time. Genuine person. So, yeah. If it's going
1: to hurt, he's going to tell you, look, this is going to hurt like hell. So yeah, he gained a lot of trust. He's also, he taught a whole lot of things. He taught our resuscitation stuff. You know, we have to do advanced life saving and pediatric life saving stuff every two years. He, t- he was an instructor with that stuff. Yeah. And again, he would be in a room during a CPR resuscitation or something. If somebody was doing something incorrectly, he'd be the first <laughs> He was never on it. at all. Yeah.
0: Do you think his transition was hard for him? Did he ever talk about that with you?
1: Sometimes. From what I know, he was the first person at Vanderbilt to ever do that. If what he described, it took like a year of meeting with a bunch of lawyers and HR reps. Really? And this is seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Things were a little different. And mostly it were, was around things like you can be called whatever you want you want your name to be different on your HR forms? That's, that's a hard ask. You want your name to be different on your W-2 mm. and your government ID and your all that stuff? That's, that's different. And then things of like, which bathroom are you going to be allowed to use? Which locker room are you going to be asked to use? When it gets into that kind of work, I guess there was lots of meetings that took place. I wasn't there (laughs) the day he walked into the break room during one of our shift meetings, pre-shift meetings, and just, like, announced that he's no longer Caroline, he's Tristan, and if everybody could call him that, he'd appreciate it. Yeah. I think there were a couple guys that reacted pretty rudely to it. Really? Right out of the bat. And they were... Knowing the people who did that or said that, they were uh, uncomfortable and scared, and they were trying to, to just be funny mm-hmm. to break the to break the ice. And, uh, you know, if you asked Tristan about it, he would just call him an asshole and move on. Like, yeah. he didn't care. Yeah. And didn't really worry about what they said. Yeah. Um, pretty thick skinned about that. He was also, at that point, already in the cycling. He never talked about this too much, but I knew he was like a devout Buddhist.
0: How does suicide vent into Buddhism? Do you know? I have no idea. Yeah.
1: I don't think. Just my guess, uh, again, after talking to his parents and kind of putting some other pieces together from the people that spoke at his service, but I think his gender transition was another try to fix whatever it was that was broken in his life. Yeah. But I don't think he knew what to do with it, and that was, that was there. Yeah. And he did, and he didn't do extreme surgeries, but there was some medical stuff involved in whatever he was working on. He's very private about that. And a couple of times I was asking him about that kind of stuff. And I said, this might be crossing a line. But and I asked him a question. He'd be like, you're right. You're crossing a line.
0: Yeah. Right. But Thanks. he probably appreciated one that you were honest enough to ask him and that you appreciated the fact that he could tell you, no, I'm not going to tell you, yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah. you know, and I like, mean, that takes a certain amount of trust with somebody, I think, yeah. to ha- have that exchange. If you exchange. preface the
1: question with this might be none of my business, yeah. but you're right. And
0: they're going to say, none of your business. Yeah, yeah. And shut up. Yeah. I do want to ask, do you think you'll ever get rid of this?
1: Oh, I don't know. You know, I didn't really have it. Um, it was in my old office. I haven't worked in there in about a year.
0: Did you ever picture it in your mind about it being there? And no.
1: I didn't. I took a lot of things with me, but some of the things in my office, I worked in this office for about six years and there was a box of things that I took with me. There's a number of things that I left kind of on purpose that have emotional attachment, but I left them there on purpose because I, I still come back to that ER sometimes to work and I still am on the campus and I'm like emotionally involved in my friends that work there and stuff, so... I kind of left it on purpose. It wasn't just to leave this to trash it. Yeah, It would bother me if I knew somebody had thrown it away.
0: What if somebody had used it?
1: <laughs> um, that's fine. I don't think, no, nobody's used it. It's still full. <laughs> um, I used it once or twice, but not out of like, oh, I really want to use that salt shaker. It was more like, I'm in here. I need some salt. Oh, yeah. Some, you know.
0: It seems like the kind of thing that you might keep around is like a good luck kind of yeah. sprinkle, you know, some that around, you know, like the way you would use like red brick dust or whatever to keep out ghosts. Um,
1: I like that it's, uh, I didn't think about this too much. Uh, When you emailed me those questions, it was late one night when I finally opened the email and started reading through the questions. And again, like we said, like I have several things that belong Mm -hmm. to people who passed away. Sure. My family and other people and in my work, I've been close up bedside of hundreds of people and kids that died. So there's like the feeling of carrying something around that somebody else has left with you is like there all the time. It's like that melancholy kind of sweet sadness Piece, I think, that's in my life. But for some reason, reading those questions, that freaking thing's the first thing I thought of. Really? And I even said to my wife, like, I'm laying on the floor stretching, or something's like, I think I need to go back to work and see the Tristan salt shaker's still there because that's what's coming up for some reason. Could have anything from my old grandfather, my other grandfather, my mom, karate sensei, uh, old friends, you name it. I don't know why that came up, especially when a family member passes away and you give something to somebody else and say that they would want you to have that. Mm. That might be true. But I, you know, the longer you'd sit with this stuff, when somebody passes away, I don't think they give a shit about their belongings anymore. <laughs> I have a number of things that I know I hope my kids hold on to. Yeah. Uh, if they remind me of them or things that I have a lot of cherishing in my life now. Yeah. But I don't really care what happens to it. I really don't. Uh, my things, at least. So <laughs> there's something that also strikes a good spot with this little salt shaker and the fact that it's so random and so common. Yeah, and so unspecial, right? It's more of like the idea of the item than it is the thing. Because I know like, if Tristan knew this were going on, he—I uh, can see him like laughing and smirking, saying, yeah. "What the fuck with the salt shaker? Yeah. Like, why?" You know, <laughs> I like,
0: was gonna ask, like, do you think he would think it was hilarious? Yeah, that you he'd hold like, on he'd to say this? It was
1: funny, random, and then we'd probably talk about it for two sentences and go on.
0: You know, it just struck me that this is a black pepper shaker that has white salt inside of it, <laughs> yeah. and so this is like Tristan, right? Like yeah. he was something else on yeah. the inside. It's than, kind of a trick. Than he was on the outside. Yeah. And it's and,
1: purposeful, like, so that you don't think, if yeah. you're looking for salt, you're not going to use that. Right. Like, but
0: and even when he tried to go through the steps of, for his insides to match his outsides, whether or not that was successful, you don't know, right? Yeah. But um, I think that's a really <laughs> surprisingly appropriate representation.
1: Oh, what I was going to say about when he died, you asked me if I'd mourned him. Yeah. Looking back and realizing that the relationship with him was really the first times I let work friends really get into the inner rooms. When he died, the weekend he died, we were going to Atlanta, to Emory, for a work-related thing. And I spent most of the drive down there calling people, mostly those social workers that we worked with because a bunch of them had moved on, and just telling them some of the old physicians that we trained with, the fellows who had gone on and gotten an attending job and moved off somewhere else and have no connection. I don't think Tristan was even on Facebook. I don't recall, but... Just telling people all the way drive down to atlanta then we did this little conference and we came back when i got back into the er like that day i was a wreck i didn't work but i walked over to the corner and absolutely i mean broke down into into tears and not that's not a, uh, a as much as we're around death and suffering that's not a reaction or a, or a emotional state you would ever find me in at work i'm not the emotional i'm the Calm, cool and in a crisis yeah the one that holds other people when they're doing that when they're breaking and my other friend Melissa who's also become really close over the years started crying too she knew Tristan but she said something like what I remember her saying was it's touching how much you love people mm. and I realized that was the if you had asked me a week before he died if I loved Tristan I would have said like I mean in like a, I love all people all organisms kind of a way yeah like I'm right. you know um, yeah but i realized that type of altruistic like loving all things is it had really soaked into like the people that you go through those kind of experiences with yes absolutely yeah and have a love for them and i think also having to mourn the loss of being able to keep that at bay mm-hmm. and just that whatever i thought i was going to be able to keep from an inner and outer room the wall just came right down yeah um and it's never really Gone back up. Do Um, you
0: think that your experience being friends with Tristan, but also losing Tristan, has it affected you becoming more open with your coworkers in that environment, or is it? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And I I think I was getting there anyway, but when he passed away, I realized I was like, I'm already deep. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, that was when I looked around and realized like I'm over my head and my emotional involvement with some of the people I work with. Like not all by any means, and it doesn't get distracting or. It's, an, it's a good thing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It just made me feel okay with being really sad or hurt when somebody moves on. Yeah. And, you know, moves on to go take another job, not dies, obviously. <laughs> right. Um,
0: You'd be sad if they died, too.
1: but Yeah, you know, we had just trained. I, I'm the youngest of three kids, and uh remember getting really comfortable with not missing people when they moved, because they all went to college before yeah. I was still young, and doing a lot of, like, uh, toughening up, like, not not getting upset because you missed them, just don't miss them. It's okay. Yeah. But letting myself get to that part of uh, being like an emotionally uh, mature adult of like, no, you missed them, and it's okay to be sad about that. It's okay to miss people, you know, and it's okay to be disappointed when they do something differently than you want them to or thought they were.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we have known each other since we were teenagers, and I do remember you always coming across as very stoic. Not that I didn't think that you had feelings. I knew that you had feelings, but... It felt like you had a feeling and you would catch it and you would look at it and you would kind of analyze it and dissect it and then you would put it in the place that it needed to go inside of you for you to be able to live with it. It came across that way, you know, and so it's it's interesting that the way that we exist through life, you know, and the things we learn about ourselves and compartmentalize and...
1: Yeah, especially with Tristan, I think you get to the point where the things that we once worked don't anymore. Yeah. That went through a period after he died where... Again, we're supervising that team was still my responsibility, and I didn't think I wanted to do it anymore. Yeah. You, know, you go through a period of like, I don't even think I wanted to go back over to that corner of the ER anymore. It's just the emotional involvement was just so thick. And it didn't really ever go away. You know, mourning, something like that, that kind of question, it's um, grief, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with this too, but <laughs> that doesn't ever, for anybody that has not gone through a lot of grief work, that doesn't go away Right. ever. I mean, it doesn't really get easier, but it gets more tolerable to live yeah, with. Yeah,
0: it's manageable.
1: Yeah, you mm-hmm. get places to put it. You know, a couple of years ago, I started doing some work with Enneagram, and my type is uh, prone to melancholy. <laughs> you know, I never would have known what melancholy was beyond like a high school uh, vocabulary word. But yeah. It's like the sweet part of the sadness. It is, you know? yeah. And yep. Especially after my mom passed away, I remember walking through the backyard and like my garden and really having that that real sweet feeling knowing that she's in everything now too, like in a very like philosophical but concrete way still. And just that sweet part of knowing you'll never be happy without the other side of it being right there in the palm of your hand yeah. at the same time. Like you can't with real grief work, I don't think you can experience joy without also experiencing the sadness that's on the other side of it. Right. And it's not really burdensome. Like after a while it becomes kind of awesome. <laughs> Um,
0: Well, it becomes another facet of your relationship with that person. It's sort of all-encompassing, I think. You know, when you think about somebody that you knew and that you miss, you miss them and you love them or you care about them or you're angry with them or whatever, but also that sadness is part of that whole experience.
1: I got to hang out most of the afternoon with my youngest. She's four, and she never got to meet my mom. And every little fun, awesome, cute things she does or every like emotional outburst and calling up to ask my mom like how should I handle this Um, (laughs) there's that every time you're excited or have like that joy of a parent of watching your kid do something there's the same backside of that wave of good feeling is the regret and sadness and longing and loss that my mom's not here to witness that you know yeah again I remember saying something like that to an older friend of mine a physician friend of mine whose kids are in high school and she's like yeah that's never going away just get used to it you know
0: so what happens to the pepper shaker?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Now that it's at my house, I think I'll just keep it. I'll probably put it in my box of stuff I have from my office and work. I hope to start doing the, the Life Flight team pretty soon, and they usually put you at a base somewhere. So I'll probably just, and there's usually a kitchenette somewhere in the base. so I'll probably put it in there. But I don't we, know.
0: we warn anybody not to use it? No, <laughs> it's a salt. Big thanks to my guest, Neil Stinson. Original score composed by Ryan Briegel. Memento Story is produced by Michael Eads and hosted by We Own This Town. If you're experiencing suicidal thoughts, please, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. The Trevor Project is also a great resource serving LGBTQ individuals under the age of 25 they can be reached at 18664887386 thanks for listening
1: We used to do this really obnoxious bingo game. We'd hear these doctors complaining in in the background all day. (laughs) So we would get their strong personalities, right? So we'd develop a bingo game of the person. Yeah. And the things they say, (laughs) the topics and the things they say, and play bingo. And in this medical ICU I'm working in, they have like a bingo game at night. They play just fun times just just to break the tension. Yeah. But I started to explain our game to somebody else, and I realized uh, I'm the only one that knows any of that stuff. Yes. It's, oh, like, okay. I don't even want to tell you now. You know, like and now it's my secret.
0: Yeah.